Good morning. Well, I think it's appropriate as we celebrate 4th of July and independence to to kind of remember also just what it took to win that independence. And when we think of that, we we might call to mind uh, the term warrior. Although it may not fit for us, you know, some 230 years ago, it, it, it by definition does fit because a warrior is a person habitually engaged in warfare. And certainly there were young people, young men who, who gave up their lives, who were habitually engaged in warfare to win our independence. And it cost them everything. And I think we would appropriately term them warriors. But this morning, I don't want to share about American warriors or warriors in battle, but rather prayer warriors. Westminster Shorter Confession Catechism says this about prayer. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with the confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Therefore, a prayer warrior is one who habitually engages in warfare by the offering up of their desires unto God. Concerning prayer, the 19th century Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane said this, what a man is alone on his knees before God that he is and no more. Century later, Martin Lloyd Jones wrote this prayer is beyond any question. The highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees, he comes face to face with God. Have you ever known a prayer warrior? Could you recall to mind someone right now who you would say that that person is a prayer warrior? What makes up those people, those prayer warriors? E.M. Bounds in his uh, classic book on prayer, the power through prayer. He, he highlights some biographies, some, some famous prayer warriors. I just want you to listen as I read through this cast of characters. Those who have most fully illustrated Christ in their character and have most powerfully affected the world for him have been those who spent so much time with God as to make it a notable feature of their lives. Charles Simeon devoted the hours from four till eight in the morning to God. Mr. Wesley spent two hours daily in prayer. He began at four in the morning of him. One who knew him well wrote, he thought prayer to be more his business than anything else. And I have seen him come out of his closet with a serenity of face next to shining. John Fletcher stained the walls of his room by the breath of his prayers. Sometimes he would pray all night, always frequently and with great earnestness. His whole life was a life of prayer. I would not rise from my seat, he said, without lifting my heart to God. Luther said this, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. On the especially busy days, I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. He had a motto, he that has prayed well has studied well. Archbishop Leeton was so much alone with God that he seemed to be in a perpetual meditation. Prayer and praise were his business and his pleasure, says his biographer. Bishop Ken was so much with God that his soul was said to be God enamored. He was with God before the clock struck three every morning. 
Bishop Asbury said, I propose to rise at four o'clock as often as I can, as often as I can and spend two hours in prayer and meditation. Samuel Rutherford rose at three in the morning to meet God in prayer. Joseph Aline arose at four o'clock for his business of praying till eight. If he heard other tradesmen plying their business before he was up, he would exclaim, oh, how this shames me. Doth not my master deserve more than theirs? One of the holiest and among the most gifted of Scotch preachers, McShane again, says, I ought to spend the best hours in communion with God. It is my noblest and most fruitful employment and is not to be thrust into a corner. The morning hours from six to eight are the most uninterrupted and thus shall be employed. After tea is my best hour and that should be solemnly dedicated to God. I ought not to give up the good old habit of prayer before going to bed, but guard must be kept against sleep. When I awake in the night, I ought to rise and pray. A little time after breakfast might be given to intercession. This was the praying plan of McShane. The memorable Methodist band and their praying shame us. From four to five in the morning, private prayer. From five to six in the evening, private prayer. John Welch, the holy and wonderful Scotch preacher, thought the day ill-spent if he did not spend eight or ten hours in prayer. He kept a plaid that he might wrap himself when he arose to pray at night. His wife would complain when she found him lying on the ground weeping. He would reply, Oh woman, I have the souls of 3,000 to answer for, and I know not how it is with many of them. Payson wore the hardwood boards into grooves where his knees pressed so often and so long. His biographer says, His continuing instant in prayer, be his circumstances what they might, is the most noticeable fact in his history. And points out the duty of all who would rival his eminency. To his ardent and persevering prayers must no doubt be ascribed in a great measure his distinguished and almost uninterrupted success. The Marquis de Renti, to whom Christ was most precious, ordered his servant to call him from devotions at the end of half an hour. The servant, coming at the end of half an hour, saw that his face, saw his face through an aperture. It was marked with such holiness that he didn't want to arouse him. His lips were moving, but he was perfectly silent. So the servant waited until an hour and a half had passed. Then he called to his master and Dorenti arose from his knees and said that the half hour was so short when he was communing with Christ. William Bramwell is famous in Methodist annals for personal holiness and for his wonderful success in preaching and for the marvelous answers to his prayers. He often spent as much as four hours in time each day in prayer. Bishop Andrews spent the greatest part of five hours every day in prayer and devotion. Sir Henry Havelock always spent the first two hours of each day alone with God. Earl Cairns rose daily at six o'clock to secure an hour and a half for the study of the Bible and prayer before conducting family worship at a quarter to eight. Dr. Judson's success in prayer is attributable to the fact that he gave much time to it. He says on this point, arrange your affairs if possible so that you can leisurely devote Two or three hours every day, not merely to devotional exercises, but to the very act of secret prayer and communion with God. Endeavor seven times a day to withdraw from business and company and lift up your soul to God in private retirement. Begin the day by rising after midnight and devoting some time amid the silence and darkness of the night to this sacred work. Let the hour of opening dawn find thee at the same work. Let the hours of nine, twelve, three, six, and nine at night witness the same. Be resolute in this cause. Make all practical, practicable sacrifices to maintain it. 
Consider that thy time is short and that business and company must not be allowed to rob thee of thy God. That's convicting, huh? You want to be like that? You want to have that kind of biography when you get to the end of your life? And, and you know what? That's just a small sample. That's just the, the people that were famous enough for, people, for, for someone to write a biography about them. That doesn't count how many men and women, young and old, all over the world have been and are now prayer warriors. And that's the best part is that anybody can be a prayer warrior. Anybody can. It takes no education, no social standing, no money. It doesn't take a seminary degree. You don't have to know Greek and Hebrew. It takes salvation and a set of knees. All are equal on their knees before God. Everyone is the same height when faces are pressed to the floor. But how do you get there? That's what I want to talk about this morning. How do you become a prayer warrior? Well, Jesus tells us how. Open with me to Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. How do you become a prayer warrior? If you know the book of Matthew, you know that this is in the Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, record a sermon that Jesus preached, probably his most famous sermon that we have recorded for us. And in this sermon, Jesus says something very interesting. He teaches on the kingdom of God, but not in the way that you might expect uh, someone to come in who's establishing a new kingdom. You can think of military leaders in the past who have come in and taken over entire countries and established a new reign, a new kingdom. They come in with battle plans, battle strategies, with armies, with, with weapons. And they come in and they take over. And so as Jesus in this sermon talks about his kingdom, it's very interesting. He doesn't talk about those things. He doesn't lay out a battle strategy for how they're going to take over the Roman Empire. He doesn't talk about his weaponry or the castle that's going to be set up or strategic locations. When he talks about the kingdom, he talks about who is in the kingdom. He talks about the character of those people who are in his kingdom. And so as we get in, as we get to the end of this sermon, and that's where we're at this morning, we're, we're closing out this sermon from Jesus. And he's, he's described what the citizen of God's kingdom looks like. And we re- pick up here in verse 7 of chapter 7. Jesus says this, ask And it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you. Who when his son asks for a loaf. Will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish. He will not give him a snake will he. If you then being evil. Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Jesus makes an interesting case here. He makes the case that it is not only the select few famous, really extra spiritual people who are prayer warriors, but actually every citizen in his kingdom is to be a prayer warrior. 
That's the point he makes here. These are commands. Jesus commands us to be prayer warriors. And in fact, if you read through his sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you'll find that he spends more effort and energy talking about prayer than any other topic. He deals with it twice in the sermon. Back in chapter 6 and here in chapter 7. And even in this section, look what he does. He gives three commands. Ask, seek, knock. And then he wraps those commands in three promises. You will receive. You will find. It will be open to you. And then in case we missed it, he says it twice in two verses. This is a way of saying, listen up. This is important. You need to hear this. Ask, seek, knock. All those commands are in the present tense, which means this. If it's the present tense, do it. Right now, we live in the present. Tomorrow, when we get there, we'll be living in the present. So pray now and pray then and pray the day after that. And don't ever stop. As long as it's in the present tense, pray this, do this, ask, seek, and knock. Don't stop. This is not a one-time deal. Do it once and you're done. This is an ongoing pattern of life. To ask, seek, and knock. And all three of those words really mean one thing. Pray. That's what they all stand for is prayer. We are commanded to pray and pray and pray. Commanded to be prayer warriors. To be habitually engaged in the battle. You remember the widow and the judge in Luke 18? At this judge and he's probably hearing a bunch of different scenarios from different people and everybody biting for his time. And this widow comes up and wants her case to be heard. And he could care less about her. There's probably a lot other more important things going on around him that he needs to deal with. But she keeps nagging and persisting and she keeps calling out to him and finally says, okay, I'll deal with you. And Jesus says, here's the point. I told you that parable to show you that at all times, you are how you ought to pray and not to lose heart, to persevere, to be prayer warriors, constant, ongoing. It's not an option. It's a command, but it's not easy either. So the question I have for you this morning is, how do I become a prayer warrior? How can I become this prayer warrior that Jesus calls me to be, that Jesus commands me to be, if I am indeed his kingdom citizen, a Christian? How can I be this? And I think that the verses in their context give two answers to that question. So if you're taking notes, answer number one, how how can I become a prayer warrior? Number one, you first need to know your need. You need to know your need. You need to know something about yourself. And that is you are needy. Very needy. This is good for Burbank Christians to hear this, right? We live in abundance. We have a lot of stuff. We would not look at ourselves and say we are needy. We could look 15, 20 minutes a different direction and say that those people are needy, but we've got it together. But it's not true. We are needy. And when you start reading the Bible, you realize something really quick. You realize that God's expectations for me and you are really high. They're really high. It's not where we put them. You start reading and believing and you realize it's up here. Right? Love the Lord your God with what? All. All your heart. 
Try to do that one. All your soul. That's high. Be holy as I am holy. That's a tough one to do. Just 10 simple commandments. If we just look at those, right? Seems easy enough. Ignore the thousand or so that are in the New Testament. Just the 10 commandments that were kind of heralded as the law. And do we even keep those? No lying, no stealing, no adultery, no murder, no coveting, keeping God first. It's tough. It's, it's a, those bars are high. And, and not only do you start to discover that the bar is really high for God's expectations, but as you read the Bible and you start to play your life against the Bible and meditate on it and compare it to how you're doing, you realize that oh, I blow it a lot. I am really sinful because you start to realize it's not just kind of keeping up a good front with people so that they think I'm holy and that's good enough, but there, my heart is involved. And if I even think thoughts that are sinful, I'm blowing it and I'm not keeping God's standards. And all of a sudden you start to read the scriptures and you realize the expectations are here and you're like here. Well, I don't know about you, but that leaves me overwhelmed overwhelmed with the christian life you ever felt that way just overwhelmed with what is expected and what you are able to do well jesus kind of plays this card in the sermon on the mount i want to show you it and if you're not feeling overwhelmed yet i hope that this maybe will get you there so look at uh look at chapter 5 verse 3 we're gonna we are going to speed through the sermon on the mount so that you can get a little flavor of what the, what the disciples would have heard. They didn't just jump in in chapter 7 like we are. But I want to give you a little flavor and just show you that, that you, along with me, along with all of us, we are needy people. Here's what, God, here's what God's expectations and standards are. Start in verse 3 of chapter 5. Here's those who are blessed. The poor in spirit. Those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Verse 8, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who have been persecuted. This is just his intro to the sermon. How, how are you doing so far? Look at verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. How's that going? And verse 20, Jesus kind of lays out what he's trying to accomplish in this sermon. He's trying to do something here. He's trying to show us something. In verse 20, he says this, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, scribes and Pharisees might not mean a whole lot to you today. But back then, that was the religious elite. Those were the guys that did everything right. On the street corners, praying incredible prayers, fasting two, three times a week, offering all their sacrifices, doing their tithes, even down to the very herbs, tithing those. They were amazing externally, outwardly. And Christ says, they're not good enough. Your righteousness must surpass them. Now, if you were listening to that, you would think, well, no one can do that. But Jesus explains what he's talking about in the following verses. So let's just keep skipping through here. Verse 22. 
Have you ever been angry with anyone? Jesus says, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty. Whoever says you fool shall be guilty, guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Ouch. How about verse 28? Lust. Have you ever lusted? Struggle with that lately. Everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. How you doing? Verse 37. Ever failed to keep your word? Not be, not have integrity. Verse 37. Let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. That's how kingdom citizens live. Verse 39. Turn the other cheek. Verse 40. They want your shirt. Give you up your coat as well. Verse 41. Go the extra mile. Verse 42. Give to him who asks of you. In other words, deny yourselves. Deny yourselves of your time, of your possessions, of your rights, of your honor. You just deny your... That's what a kingdom citizen does. Just lives to deny himself how are we doing on that verse 44 love your enemies that's tough pray for those who persecute you Mm. and and just in case anybody kind of thinks they're standing through all that can still pat themselves on the back at the end i think jesus just gives us 48 to make sure that it's all done Therefore, go and just be perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In case you were wondering what perfect meant. Just like him. Are you feeling the need here? Are you feeling that there may be a gap between what God's expectations are, what his standard is, and where you are? Jesus has has widened that gap. The Pharisees tried to get rid of it and say, yeah, we'll minimize the law so that we can keep it. Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh, the gap is there. Let's get into chapter six. Keep rolling here. Chapter six, verse one, have you ever done any good deeds, good works just to be noticed by other people? Just so that somebody would pat you on the back or give you a compliment. You wanted the praise of man. That's sin. Verse 15, fail to forgive. That's bad too. Verse 24, you ever loved anything more than God, like any material things or treasured money more than him? That's bad news. Verse 25, you ever worried? And he says here, do not be worried about your life. And he goes on to explain that you aren't even allowed to worry about the basic necessities, food, drink, clothing. And if we can't worry about those, which are our basic needs, everything else is included as well. Can't do that. Verse 33. How you doing? Seeking God first above everything else. And we get into chapter 7 and just look at the difficulty in chapter 7. It basically says this. Those first six verses. um, Don't judge in the wrong way, but you better judge. But be careful not to dish it out to the wrong people or you're going to be trampled. That's tough. Trying to think through that and figure out, am I doing this right? What, what's, what, I don't want, you know, just be careful. And, and I don't know about you, but I feel overwhelmed going through this. How can anyone live this way? How can I live this way? 
feel the need here? I mean, if you're like me, every category needs work. We're angry, we're lustful, we're liars, we're selfish, unloving, hypocrites, unforgiving, anxious, we judge wrongly. I mean, you could just look back at your last week and probably cover those. If you're honest with your thought life. How can we possibly match up to the kingdom citizen? How can we do this? Answer, you cannot. You can't. That's the answer. You can't. God has set up his kingdom in such a way that you can't. But he can. And so it it makes a lot of sense that he rolls in from all that teaching, all that humbling, all that just pushing our faces into the ground on every characteristic of our lives. And then he says, so ask, seek, knock, pray. See, when you, when you see your need, this is where it should drive you. You see your need, it should drive you to fall on your knees. The more honestly you look at your own failings, the more you should be on your knees. Your failure as a Christian should drive you to prayer. It's the godliest people that are the greatest sinners. Paul saw himself that way. And when you understand your need, your desperate condition, when you really grasp that, when you really see the gap, that's when you're going to pray. That's one of the first steps to becoming a prayer warrior. Jesus has laid out a standard that should crush you, should crush every person. When you realize the depth of your depravity and it should make you uncomfortable. And I hope Jesus does make you uncomfortable because comfortable people, they don't ask God for anything. Why? They're content with just status quo. Lloyd-Jones says the most fatal thing in the Christian life is to be content with passing desires. Comfortable people don't get off the couch to knock on the door. So how do you become prayer warriors? You become very, very good friends with your need. Embrace it. And, And let your need drive you in the right direction. Don't let it drive you to some kind of works righteousness. That's what the Pharisees did. Don't let it drive you to, to kind of sometime, some kind of maintaining a righteousness in front of people so that if everyone sees you as moral and upright and, hey, I, I look like I'm keeping Matthew 5, 6, and 7, then that's good enough. Don't go that direction. That was the problem with the Pharisees is they were trying to do this on their own. And... Uh, And you know how you know if you're doing that, if you're living that way, if you're living some kind of self-dependent Christian walk where you're doing it, I'll tell you how you know, is that the Christian life is going to feel like a big, fat burden. It's going to feel like a burden. You've got to ask yourself, does the Christian life feel like a burden to you? Because 1 John 5, 3 says that his commandments are not burdensome. And Matthew 11.30 says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So if you're feeling the Christian life as this giant burden, something's not going right. 
And you're probably trying to cut the distance on that gap all by yourself. Don't turn that direction. Don't let the gap lead you to try to get yourself there. It's not going to happen. The burden's going to be too much and you're just going to give up on the whole thing. Walk away from it. Let the burden turn you to God. Because yes, it is burdensome. It is burdensome to keep all these, these rules and laws and commandments. There's lots of them. It's difficult. It's hard. It is burdensome. It's just not your burden to bear. It's for God to bear. So ask and seek and knock. Don't try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn to God and lay it on him. And if you do, Jesus has wrapped all of this in a wonderful problem. If you ask, you'll, you'll receive. If you seek, you'll find. If you knock, the door will be open to you. That's a promise. But that promise will be meaningless to you if you don't understand your condition. Just like if I came to you and said, I promise to bail you out of jail. I promise. That's meaningless to you if you're not in jail. Meaningless. So, okay, great, weirdo. It, it doesn't make any sense, right? It, it, it becomes meaningful when you're in jail. And then you treasure that promise. Well, and the fact of the matter is, for all of us, in a sense, we are in jail. I mean, we can close our eyes and kind of bounce around off the bars and say everything's okay and we're doing just fine. Thank you. But the reality is we are in jail and you read the word and, and it opens your eyes to the fact that you're in jail. And then the promise becomes meaningful. Then it becomes something sweet because you realize your state. So how do you become a prayer warrior? Embrace your need know your need, go to the word, get your eyes open to your need. Because when you know your need, you're going to go to your knees and become a prayer warrior. So first, know your need. Second answer to how do you become a prayer warrior? Know your father. Know your father. Number two, what, what God do you pray to? I assume that most of you in here probably pray. But what God do you pray to? Hindus pray. They pray to Krishna. Muslims pray to Allah. Atheists pray to themselves. Really. Mormons pray to an exalted man. Many Catholics pray to Mary. What God do you pray to? Who's your God? Do you know who you're asking? Do you know who you're seeking? Do you know who's standing on the other side of that door that you're knocking on? This is the, this is the main point of this text. Look at verses 9 to 11. What man is there among you? What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Now, the argument from Jesus is pretty simple here. Pretty simple. Um, anyone in here a father? You see hands? Okay, your father. Okay, anyone in here have a father? All right, okay. We got a lot of people here. All right, we understand the father, you know, or mother parent relationship with a child. We understand that. We live in that. Some are better than others, but we live in that. Now, I've got three kids I've got Luke, Maddie, and Annabelle. Annabelle is my three year old. And at three years old, 
she has already mastered the art of dad is putty in my hands. She doesn't know it yet, but she's already mastered it. I'm trying to hide it from her that she knows that. Okay. She, she knows just how to play me. I don't know if it's the third, the baby, the princess. I don't know what it is about it, but she knows how to just bat the eyes and give me the look. And, and, uh, and, you, and it's hard to say no to her. And in fact, her, her killer line that she gives me when she really, when she really wants something is she'll come to me and she'll say, please, King handsomest daddy. (laughs) Whatever you want. (laughs) Up to half my kingdom will be yours. I, I have, Katie has to call me on that because I'll say yes every time. And it's because I, I, you know, I love her. I care for her. I, I want to meet her wants and not because I'm a great dad. That's, that's natural. There's something just very normal and natural about that parent-child relationship and helping out the one who's needy and, and feeding them and taking care of them. And you don't have to be a Christian to know about that. That's just basic. And, and, and the point here is that even in the world, which is evil, it says, fathers give good gifts to their children. It's a normal thing to do. Well, then how much more God? If evil, morally limited, weak, unethical, worldly families, parents, fathers will do this kind thing for their children and give them the basic sustenance of life, how much more God? Who is perfect. That's what Jesus called him earlier. How much more will he give what is good to those who ask him? See, we need to know who we're dealing with when we ask, seek, and knock. Are you a Christian this morning? You embraced Jesus as your Savior. I mean, really embraced him. You really want him. You really treasure him. He really is your savior, not just a a set of formulas that you know about, but, but you care and love and have committed your life to Jesus. He rose from the dead. He died three days before that. And that's it. That's you're done. That's life for you. Are you really a Christian? Then get this, get this. Do you know that God is perfectly good? Perfectly good. Do you know that God is, is all powerful, sovereign, able to do anything he pleases? Do you know that God is all knowing, utterly wise? He defines it. Do you believe those things? Because if you're a Christian, that God is your father. He's your father. He's not some far off Allah God. He is your father. Just like children have fathers. He's your father. And the more you come to grips with that fact that this God, this good, holy, sovereign, all powerful God is, is my father. Those five minutes of prayer are going to turn into 20. Those 20 minutes of prayer are going to turn into 30. 30 minutes is going to turn into an hour, an hour into two. As you come to grips with the fact that you are dealing with your father. 
That's when the promises come to life. Promises come to life when you realize that. Let me illustrate it this way. I am promising everyone in this room $10,000. You guys excited about that? That kind of charging you up, making your day? I'm not seeing it (laughs) at all. Yeah, It's not getting you excited. I know why. You know what I drive. <laughs> you know that I don't have it, that I'm, I'm bluffing here. I don't have 10,000 to give out to anybody, let alone the whole group. And, um, and your excitement goes down because you know I don't have $10,000. And besides that, most of you guys I don't have an intimate personal relationship with, so why would I give you $10,000? It just doesn't make sense. Well, what if, however, your rich grandfather came to you and said, I'm promising you $10,000. All you got to do is ask. Whew. That'd be exciting. One, you know he's got it. Two, you know there's a relationship. It makes sense for him to give it to you. See, your excitement over the promise is dependent upon the character of the person making the promise and the relationship that you have with them. God is perfect in character. And as far as relationship, he is your father. That should get you excited. That should get you on your knees. That should, that will make prayer warriors. When you grasp that. And he has promised that if you ask and seek and knock, as your good, loving father, he will deliver. And he's going to deliver, you know what? Something a lot better than $10,000. Says there in the verse, he will deliver good. What is good to those who ask him? He'll deliver good things to you. This is sweet. I want you to think about this for a minute. Because there are whole groups of, of kind of religious thinking that's, that just goes off on this verse and, and completely ruins it. He gives what is good to you. This is not some universal promise that anything I may ask of God will automatically be granted. And when it doesn't happen, God's not true. Bible's not true. That's not what this is. Praise God it's not that. Praise God that it is so much bigger and better of a promise than that. Can you imagine what life would be like if God just wrote you a blank check to have whatever you asked for? Can you imagine what a mess you would get your life into and others around you? I mean, just think about it. Think about all the things you've asked for. I, uh, I grew up playing a lot of sports as a youth. I mean, from four years old on, it was sports all year, all year long. And, and I was hoping to just keep playing into high school and maybe even into college and maybe get in somewhere and play something. And, and it was big. It was huge for me. I love sports. And, and it came to my, the summer before my junior year of high school, kind of a big year in sports. And I blew out my knee one summer, blew it out completely, had to get reconstructive surgery, a whole nine yards. And I missed that whole year of sports. And I even missed some parts of my senior year. And I can remember crying out to God, please heal my knee, heal it, just miraculously heal it. 
take care of this thing. I want to go back and play. I want to be back to normal. And I just remember begging God. I was asking, seeking, knocking all the time for this. He never did it. He didn't heal my knee. He didn't miraculously change things. And oh, I praise God he didn't. I wouldn't go back and trade that year for anything. Because it was that year that God took this proud, arrogant, sport idolizing guy and took him a step closer to embracing him instead of sports. And I wouldn't change that for the world. That was the best thing that could ever have happened to me. And I begged God to get me out of it. And you know what he did instead? He did something that was good. And that's what he promises here. That he will do what's good. Parallel in Luke 11 says this, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Doesn't get any better than receiving the Holy Spirit. So become good friends with your need and become good friends with your father. That will cause you to become a prayer warrior. David Brainerd, kind of known as a prayer warrior, great missionary to the Indians. And he recorded his prayer life in his journal. And I'll just read you one account of it. He says this, feeling somewhat of the sweetness of communion with God and the constraining force of his love and how admirably it captivates the soul and makes all the desires and affections to center in God. See him, he's focusing on God. I set apart this day for secret fasting and prayer to entreat God to direct and bless me with regard to the great work which I have in view of preaching the gospel and that the Lord would return to me and show me the light of his countenance. But I had little life and power in the forenoon. Near the middle of the afternoon, God enabled me to wrestle ardently in intercession for my absent friends. But just at night, the Lord visited me marvelously in prayer. I think my soul was never in such agony before. I felt no restraint for the treasures of divine grace were open to me. I was in such agony from sun half an hour high till near dark that I was all over wet with sweat, but yet it seemed to me I had done nothing. Oh, my dear Savior did sweat blood for poor souls. I longed for more compassion toward them. Brainerd's prayer life is filled with a need that he sees in himself and his immediate reliance upon the father. And um, he died at 29 years old. This man was a prayer warrior. Late 20s, he's gone. So how about you? How about you, Christian? Maybe you go home today and you've got David Brainerd ringing in your ears picture of some prayer warrior on their knees four hours a day interceding for the whole world and you realize that you on the other hand are pretty angry lustful anxious individual primarily your prayer life is focused on you more so on what you want than what you need with god kind of out there somewhere listening in maybe one of these describes something you might be thinking right now or this afternoon you might be thinking that an hour of focused prayer time sounds like a lot just for a week let alone for a day. You may be frustrated because it feels like your prayers just bounce off the ceiling and you never see any answers. Nobody's listening. 
Maybe you feel down because your prayers aren't nearly as good as that godly friend of yours or that pastor's prayer you heard the other day. So why bother? You might feel guilty because you really do care about your friends and family and and yet you haven't prayed for them in weeks. Your future isn't looking too bright either because with job and kids and schedule and all the stuff you've got going on, there just isn't any time for this. Prayer warrior? I haven't even enlisted yet. What's all this talk about a warrior? Well, future warriors... I want to introduce you to some weapons. I want to introduce you to some weapons because wherever you're at, you need to start right where you're at and start moving. And I want to show you some of the weapons of a prayer warrior. And some of these are going to be very helpful for you and others you're not going to use as much. But I want to take some weapons straight out of the scripture and also some weapons that have been given in the past by saints both past and present, actually, and, and just stuff that they've lived and gleaned and shared with us about prayer. You read from Daniel 6 that Daniel, after the document had been signed that said, don't worship anybody but the, the king, that he got down on his knees three times a day, prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He had some weapons already in place. And he was a prayer warrior. So I want to introduce you to 10 weapons. Okay. This is to help 10 weapons. And, um, you can just write them down as we go. We're going to kind of zip through them. 10 weapons. The first weapon use cats and IOUs. Use cats and IOUs. Brad Kelly has kind of taught us about cats or acts. It's an acronym for just structuring your prayer. If you feel like you're all over the place and what do I pray for? Start with cats. C for confession, A for adoration, T for thanksgiving, S for supplication. It's a good way to structure your prayer. And when you're really feeling dry or down, I want to give you this one. This is one that I love. I-O-U-S. I-O-U-S. And the way you can remember it is I-O-U-S. I comes from Psalm 119.36. Incline. Psalmist says, incline my heart to you. Incline my heart. Take this wayward heart that is so inclined to everything else in this world and just incline it to you, God. O stands for open. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things from your law. Psalm 119, 18. You, unite. Unite my heart to fear you. Take those wayward traitor's desires and just Unite them on you, God. Psalm 86, 11. And S, satisfy. Satisfy me with your loving kindness in the morning. Psalm 90, 14. Satisfy me with you, God. And those are great prayers to pray when you are just feeling like your spirit is all over the place and you're dry and you're empty. Just IOUs, IOUs. Number two, second weapon. Start your prayers with Matthew 6, 9, and 10. Matthew 6, 9, and 10. They read this. This is the, the Lord directing his disciples how to pray. He says, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a great way to start each prayer. You know why? Because it does a couple of things. It immediately gets you ex- focused on God. Hallowed be your name, God. Exalted be you. Not me. You. And then it also gets you focused on praying God's will. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. 
rather than my will be done, my kingdom come. It just it's a great way to get your mind focused. Number three, third weapon, use strategies to keep your mind focused. You need these. You're going to wander off so quickly. You just try to stop and sit for five minutes and just pray to God. And you probably go 10 different directions. So, so use some strategies. Use prayer sheets. Use a little card of reminders. I carry one around in my wallet. And it's just a card of reminders of things that I want to pray for. And I can pull it out and it helps my mind stay on track. It's a strategy. Uh, memory verses with, uh, on three by five cards. You can do prayer journals. You could try fasting. Okay, it's good to fast. And that'll keep you focused because then you should be wanting food and drink. And it'll remind you, oh yeah, I'm focusing on the Lord today. I'm giving that up. Um, sleep. Get some sleep. It's hard to focus in your morning hour of prayer on four hours of sleep. So forget about it. Get some sleep. Get a cup of coffee. Okay? I'm going to get comments on that. I know it. But yeah, you know what? Get a cup of coffee and do what it takes to keep your mind. These are strategies to use to help. Number four, fourth weapon, create times for prayer. You are rarely ever going to come across in your life just a free hour for prayer. Hey, look at that. I just had a free hour today to pray. Perfect. Right? I mean, that is unthinkable to have a free hour just to pray. And isn't that nice? That maybe happens once every three or four months. Okay, if you're going to have time for prayer, even if it's just five or ten minutes, for most of us, we're going to have to create that time in our schedule, plan it in. John Piper writes this, the plants of ceaseless prayer grow in the garden of persistent discipline. It's good to be disciplined with your prayer. Plan the times. And I would encourage you this way, start early. And the Bible tells us to pray in the morning, afternoon, evening, seven times a day. I mean, the Bible tells us to pray all the time, but I would just encourage you, start early. It is so important to let the first action of your day be dependence on God and focus on God. Otherwise, you're like me. Sometimes I'll be, I'll be driving in here to work, and I'll hit that red light, and I'll start to get frustrated, and then I'll remember, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. And I, it's like, I hadn't even thought about that all morning. I've just been busy doing everything. And I finally, and it's like, I wake up and go, oh yeah, I'm living for, supposed to live for God today. And, and so let the, let the very first moment of your day be prayer. Jesus did that in Mark one thirty five. He got up while it was still dark, even after a night of ministry and healing, got up while it was still dark and prayed, set that time aside. Number five, fifth weapon, cultivate spontaneous prayer. And this is really just a way to say pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing doesn't mean you're always talking with God, verbally talking with God. If that was the case, you couldn't fulfill other commands that God's given you. So we know that, that that's not what that means. But what it does mean is that you have this attitude and spirit of prayer that's, that's all the time in your life. And I think cultivating spontaneous prayer can help you get there. For instance, let your default be God. Let your def- pray that God would make your default him. In other words, you're at your job, do your job, focus on your job. That's good. Whatever you're doing, you're working, you're mowing the lawn. Hey, focus. You're taking care of kids. Focus. I mean, do what you need to do. But then when you have the moments that are free and you don't have to focus on that thing, default to God, instead of defaulting to some fantasy or defaulting to some person or defaulting to some anxiety or critical thing, ask God to make you default to him. 
so that you have those free moments and you're to him and then, okay, I'm back and I'm engaged in my job or whatever. And you're going back to him. Stop and pray right away. Stop and pray for things right away. My in-laws really uh, taught me this. It's just so, it was so amazing to step into that family and watch them do this. And just, I mean, instantly an issue would come up or we'd start talking about somebody and Hey, let's stop and pray for them. Do that. Um, keep short accounts. Don't wait until bedtime to confess your sins. Confess through all, throughout the day. And this may mean a lot of confession. Good. This week in, in particular, I had one day where I felt like I was just confessing all day. All day. But you know what? Better that than storing up the sin all day and just trying to unload at night after I've just taken it even deeper. Confess your sins. Be spontaneous. Just be going to God all day long. And then do this. Start turning over those personal sins and start doing some spontaneous prayer with those. For instance, if you struggle with eating, before every meal, before every bite that goes in your mouth, just get in the practice and the habit of just saying a prayer. It could be something real short and quick. God, help me to have self-control. Get in the habit. If you struggle with impurity, before you get on the road or hit the mall or turn on the TV or the computer, get in the habit of praying, spending some time with God, even if it's just a quick shot. Struggle with your tongue before every conversation, pray. Ephesians 4.29, be a good verse to pray through. Struggle with anxiety or your marriage or, or anger towards your kids before you sit down and discipline them, pray. Let that be the kind of spontaneous prayer that defines you. Number six, sixth weapon, mean it when you say in Jesus' name. Mean it. Think about that. Don't just let that rattle off in Jesus' name, amen. That, that is a loaded, loaded statement in Jesus' name. The fact that Jesus, he is the whole reason why you can pray. He is your mediator. He is the one that provides access between you and God. And he's the only one. And he has a will and he pleased the father. And you can look at his life and think about him and let that, let that direct your prayers. Number seven, find a good prayer closet. My prayer closet is walking Man, I, I am so much more focused and I'm so much just more consistent in prayer when I'm just walking. I get out and walk somewhere and pray through something. For other, others of you, that may not work. But find a good prayer closet, someplace where you can set aside good, effective time for prayer. Number eight, pray even when you don't feel like it. Just because you don't feel like it, don't say, well, then I guess it doesn't mean anything. I don't feel like it and I don't, you know, that would just be hypocritical to pray now. Uh-uh. Okay, you're already sinning by not rejoicing and delighting in God, which is commanded of us. Don't add more sin to that and refuse to ask, seek, and knock, which are also commands. Pray. Pray, and then as you're praying, confess, Lord, I'm sorry for not delighting in you. I'm sorry for not rejoicing in you. And then when that happens, uh, you know, 10 seconds later, say you're sorry for it again. And just don't avoid prayer, though. Number nine, get others involved in praying. You got to see that this morning. Get others involved in praying. It doesn't just happen here at church. It can happen in your homes, happen when you're out and about, with your family, with your friends. Get others involved in praying for you. Paul, in Ephesians 6, asked them to pray for him, that he might have boldness in preaching the gospel. So get others enlisted in praying for you. And number 10, this is the one that has hit me the most lately. Number 10, 10th weapon. Open your Bibles. Open your Bibles. Pray your Bibles. 
you go and read some of the prayers in the scriptures, it'll change the way you pray. It'll get you in line with God's will. You know why? Because he's put his will in here very clearly. You go and you read John 17, Jesus praying to his father. It'll blow your mind. You go and read Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, the prayers that are there, Colossians 1, Philippians 1. You'll find prayers there too. And what they pray for is different than I pray. But I want to be in line with God's will and open your Bibles and figure it out. Mueller did this. It was life-changing for him. He had this pattern of prayer where he'd spend hours of prayer, but he said it was just fruitless and it was just all over the place and I couldn't focus. And he said what he, what's changed his prayer life is that um, after having asked, he says here, after having asked in a few words the Lord's blessing upon his precious word, I began to meditate on the word of God, searching, as it were, into every verse to get blessing out of it. The result I have found to almost invariably be this, that after a very few minutes, my soul is led to confession or thanksgiving or intercession or supplication. So that though I did not, as it were, give myself to prayer, but to meditate on God's word, yet it turned almost immediately more or less into prayer. That has been the weapon that has been most effective for me in this last week. I'll be honest with you guys. This has been a rough week. Rough. And, and I got to the point where I just didn't even want to go anywhere without my pocket Bible and my finger lodged in the book of Hebrews. And every time my mind started to wander, every time there'd be temptation, just yank it out without thinking and just start reading and reading about Christ and the glory of Christ in that book of Hebrews and just getting my mind back where it needed to be and getting it in prayer. And it saved me. It was my lifeblood this week to just yank out the scriptures, just open up my Bible and just start praying. Use the Bible to nourish your soul in prayer. Well, don't give up. Don't give up. Keep asking, seeking, knocking. When you fall into sin or fail in your disciplines or go through a time of neglect or become overwhelmed with circumstances or experience a trial... Don't give up. You need help. You need help. And you have a wonderful father who knows just how to help. And who is able to do whatever he desires in his love for you. So don't give up. There's nothing in the world that's going to solve your problems. But you have a father. A good, loving, powerful father. And he tells you to ask, seek, and knock. And the door will be opened. Let's pray. So Father, it seems right to ask that, Lord, that you would make us into prayer warriors, that we would ask, seek, and knock regularly, that we would set up strategies in our lives to draw us into intimate relationship with you, our Father that we would get to know you, that we would embrace our needs in every area, Lord, and that that would drive us not to self-righteousness, but to our knees in prayer. I pray that you would be with us, Lord, and that you would take us even into this afternoon and grant us good times in prayer. So Lord, we give you thanks in your name. Amen.